Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Oh, my. You know, I I sometimes have this love-hate relationship with social media because... Uh, let's face it. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of emoting that goes on there. There's a lot of unnecessary conflict that seems to stem from social media. On the other hand, there are some benefits. Okay, let me let me tell you one of the the benefits. Of course, is uh, if I'm looking to make a particular political argument about something, more often than not, I can find the answer on social media. There's also another thing, and that is uh, I I can sometimes learn about things that I never knew existed before. Let me give you an example here. Did you know that there is such a thing as combat juggling? I kid you not. This is an actual sport. This is this actually pits jugglers. <laughs> I'm sorry, against each other. Uh, they, I, I only watched about a four minute clip of it, but I couldn't look away. It was it was that fascinating. Um, think of, of two jugglers, each with three. Um, I guess they call them clubs, but they look like, you know, kind of the uh, modified bowling pins that they're constantly throwing. And they tell them, you know, get them up on the stage and ready, fight. So these guys start juggling and then they're, I, the, the whole concept here is they have to interfere with one another. And you have to make your opponent drop his clubs while you still maintain yours and keep juggling yours. So, in other words, when one juggler is unable to continue keeping three pins going, uh, but the other one can, the points are awarded to the one who's still juggling. I know, fascinating stuff. Why are we wasting all of our time and effort watching the Super Bowl or, you know, other sporting events? Combat juggling. It's it's a real thing. And apparently uh, some people are really, really good at it. Something I didn't even know existed before today. My life is changed. All right. Let's start. We're going to start on a non-political tangent today. I'll probably get to some political stuff. There's there's a lot going on. um, As far as, you know, the the move, we've got to impeach Trump. We've got to uh, we got to make sure that uh, the president is held accountable, which would be nice in the sense that. I don't remember the last time a president was held accountable for things like, oh, I don't know, starting unnecessary wars or things like that. But again, I'll save that for a later time. Since I let off with juggling, I want to lead off with an article here that was on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. That's fee.org. This is by Daniel Buck, and it's titled Americans Need a Hobby. Now, since we're just coming out of the weekend... Maybe this is something that will resonate with you, because for a lot of people, weekends are when they pursue their hobby. But what exactly is a hobby? Well, according to this article, a hobby is really just kind of a stand-in word for a third mode of being in between work and relaxation. Here's how Daniel Buck describes it. He says, there are a few untold benefits of being a doctor's spouse. Free food, fine cocktails, and small talk with disparate characters. He says at one event, a reception for new psychiatric residents, he sat with two other doctor's spouses discussing house projects and summer vacations, left to get seconds and returned to a conversation about knitting. Now, to him, 
The potential tedium of knitting induces anxiety, but to them, it was exhilarating. It was an activity that required a single mind so much that they couldn't talk while focused on their needles. In other words, they had a hobby. Now, unfortunately, he says hobbyism is in decline. Over half of American leisure time is spent watching TV. Oh, Netflix, I'm, I'm laying this right at your feet. We start binging on a particular series, and it is pretty tough to look away. And Netflix, of course, makes it even easier, as do most of the other services like Amazon and Hulu and others, because they'll start the next show for you. Or they'll start the next episode automatically. You don't even have to do anything. You just basically have to sit there and try not to drool on yourself. Daniel Buck says, standing as an example, my class had just finished a discussion and with the material covered and not enough time to start anything new, he says, I gave the students a moment of free time. About six or seven of them stood up, plopped down on beanbags and then spent the next few minutes showing their screens to each other. Now, he says, in my students defense, an English classroom isn't an ideal location for woodworking or embroidery, but it is an apt metaphor for contemporary life. Because a proper classroom has countless little elements fostering peak productivity. When it finishes, all structure subsides and a dull repose takes its place. That is but one microcosm of the work-rest culture. Every second of the workday is geared towards productivity, bound up tight until it's all released in pure catharsis, the internet, video games, or the entire Game of Thrones series. But he says, despite stereotypes about entitlement and apathy... Millennials fit this mold as workaholics. They take less time off than older generations. They're more likely to work on vacations. On the other end of the spectrum, they spend over four hours a day watching TV and 11 hours engaging with media. The dichotomy of work and lethargy remains. And Daniel Buck says this lifestyle of workism, paired with media catharsis, has left millennials and Gen Zers caught in an upward trend of depression, anxiety, and suicidality. Gone are T.S. Eliot's ghosts in his wasteland ambling across London Bridge, discussing the bodies of World War II buried in the garden. Now blue-lit apparitions amble down the hallways between moments of engagement and activity in the workplace, car seat, and classroom. As we consume more and more content, he says our lives become ever more devoid of it. You know, I never thought of it that way, but it makes great sense. And it, and it actually sends a little chill up my spine. Next, he recommends look to E.B. White. He says, I compare this contemporary dichotomy to a lifestyle hiding contentedly in E.B. White's essays. Between his moments of mindless observations and literary pursuits, he maintained a small farm that required herding his flocks, collecting eggs, planting, watering and fertilizing. Did any of it help his writing? Perhaps, but only insofar as it gave him subject matter to write about. Was it mindlessly cathartic like binge-watching television? He says, I doubt it. And yet there's a fullness of life and even peace in his essays that our 20-minute episodes can't create. Between his state of work and relaxation, both of which he did much, there was a third mode of being. It wasn't productive enough to be considered work. It wasn't relaxing enough to be considered leisure. It was a life full of hobbies. And then he says, I reflected on what I considered my hobbies. Some might call exercising a hobby, but my breathless search for pers of personal records makes it too productive for such a designation. Maybe reading is a hobby, 
but he says when my choices fell into either philosophy or fantasy, my reading bordered on productivity or catharsis. In other words, I didn't have a hobby. No, he says hobbies fall between the productivity catharsis divide. Woodworking, embroidery, collecting, crafting, fishing, or any other is not productive like work is. Work is done for what it accomplishes. Leisure activities bring relaxation. Both have an alternative goal. But a hobby is done for itself. So he did a personal experiment. He says, I decided to build a bookcase. Now, he says, I hadn't worked with power tools since an elective period in middle school. Building a piece of furniture was, was tedious work. The project called for countless measurements, repeated cuts, sanding, screwing, gluing, more sanding, finishing, and one last round of sanding. And Daniel Buck says, very little thought happened in my rudimentary shop of sandpaper and handsaws, but I remember seeing a solar eclipse in the shadow of the leaves and the album that played while I marked a cut. At no point did I have grand sweeping realizations. My mind was ever so slightly engaged and so could only muster flippant thoughts on passing or passing impressions. It wasn't relaxing and it didn't make me any money. It was a project I, I completed simply to make a bookcase. Now, he says, I reflect on dinner conversations with friends between passing dishes and after preliminary catch ups are over. Someone inadvertently asks the group if they've been watching some show. A few murmur yes, others no, wanting to share in the experience but unwilling to spoil anything. Those in the loop croon a few syllables over the quality of it, and the conversation dies back down. Then someone asks about some other series, and the process repeats. Where Netflix and Facebook provide superficial content and leave our lives devoid of interesting stories, knitting fostered, fostered rather a conversation to last the entirety of the resident reception. He says, perhaps that was a manifestation of a deeper meaning that both of those women had in their lives. He says, commentators and authors have spilled much ink in discussing the death of community, family and religion in America. And the arguments run that without some cohesive community, people either turn to politics for their meaning or lose any center to their lives. It has been blamed for anger, political vitriol, populism, extremism. Deaths of despair, declining birth rates, and the aforementioned rise in depression, anxiety, and suicidality. So what's a likely response? What's, a, what's an, an appropriate response? Well, you're going to have to wait to the other side of these messages to find out what Daniel Buck thinks. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. If you're catching the live broadcast, if you're catching the podcast, well, the phone is likely to go unanswered. But I'm glad you're uh, taking in the show today. We're talking about a hobby. This is an article by Daniel Buck, published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And he makes a very interesting uh, distinction between leisure time, work time, and a hobby. Now, I have to admit, I've always kind of understood that uh, leisure time means that uh, that's the time you get to uh, basically do what you want, which I would have included hobbies as a part of this. But he says, no, there's a, there's a distinction here because leisure time is all about doing nothing, accomplishing nothing. With a hobby, you are 
accomplishing something, but it's not necessarily productive. You're not doing it for pay. You're not doing it to, you know, to fulfill a contractual obligation. That would be work. But he says, neither is it leisure in the sense that you're not just uh, relaxing, soaking up, you know, the cathode rays, or at least what uh, we used to do when we'd watch TV. And it started with a conversation about knitting that he, uh, I don't know if he was a part of, but he was certainly a party to at a uh, reception for uh, new psychiatric residents, uh, wherever it is that, uh, that his spouse works. And he asks the question, so what, what do you do about the, the, the need for a hobby in America? He points out that commentators and authors have spilled a lot of ink discussing the death of family, community, and religion in America. But what do you do? He says the response to this situation isn't clear. If I ask a colleague to go to church with me or I give him a Bible, he says I risk ruining a relationship. And he says it's unlikely that a host of Americans will miraculously return to church since religious belief is an emotionally fraught, deeply personal, and almost necessarily divisive issue. Returning to church, the daily choice to place primacy on family, sweeping policy reforms and personal investment in failing communities are difficult decisions to make. But picking up a handsaw or a couple of knitting needles, that's easy. So he says a hobby is really just kind of a stand in word for a third mode of being between work and relaxation. In his case, building a bookshelf accomplished little definitive good for him, but at least while he was working on it, he had something to do, something with which to define himself that was less stressful than work and more substantive than playing video games. So while it won't fix the mental health crisis or the state of political discourse, he says perhaps it's time for all of us to take the cliche advice and go find a hobby. <laughs> Oh, man, I look at some of the arguments that break out, especially on social media, and that is one of the common responses. Get a hobby. Go get a hobby, because if, if all the time you have is to sit there and argue on the Internet, there's probably some wisdom in getting yourself a hobby. Now, can I confess one of my favorite ones? And I, you know, you can think I'm weird. It's OK. It's a hobby. But one of my favorite things to do, especially as the weather starts to turn cold, as it has done, like in the last couple of days, leaves are changing. There's snow on the mountains. The clouds and wind have been kicking up. So, uh, yeah, going out and, uh, you know, working in the yard that I might have to do that as a necessity. But if I have free time and I don't want to just sit there and veg in front of the TV, I like to I like to hand load. Ammunition. I like to reload ammo. I know you're thinking, well, you know, you're a gun nut, Hyde. Of course you do. You that's that's uh, probably one of your favorite things. But it, it's not just uh, it's not just a matter of uh, well, you know, I'm obsessive about uh, you know the Second Amendment or anything like that. There's something to be said for rolling your own ammunition. And I, I don't know how to explain it other than um, there's there's a fair amount of, of tedium involved because you do want to be very careful. I mean, you know, you're dealing with fairly uh, high pressures uh, when 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 those cartridges are fired. You don't want to blow up your gun because you were sloppy and double charged a, a case with more powder than it was supposed to have. Or, 
You know, otherwise you, you made something out of spec that could actually harm your gun or potentially harm you. It seems mindless. Moving components around, measuring powder, you know, cleaning, chamfering the case, you know, all of these things. And, and some people can get into it to where, I mean, they're, they're like almost scientific about it. We water weight each case and we sort them by head stamp and we make sure that they're oriented exactly the same way before we put the primer in. I mean, it can, it can get very detail oriented. And I don't know how to describe why it's such a great, relaxing thing to do. And again, call me weird if you think I'm weird, because this this may be a really weird thing. But after I have had a session sitting there at my reloading bench, and there's this nice, shiny row, or maybe many shiny rows, of freshly made cartridges just waiting to be boxed up and put away, I have a real sense of accomplishment. Now, look, it's a hobby that costs money, and it's not getting cheaper, by the way, but it uh, it just gives me such a sense of satisfaction to look at that and go, you know what? I did this. I put these together. No, I didn't create the brass by, you know, smelting the ore and, you know, casting it myself. I didn't create the primers myself. I, I didn't cast the bullets myself, although I have friends who do that. I'm a little bit jealous of them. But for some reason, that is just one of those things that uh, just brings a, a little smile to my face. And I feel like it's good use of my time, even though technically all I've really done is I've just, well, you created some cartridges. whoopity do! <laughs> what did that accomplish? I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that it qualifies as a hobby. And it's a fun one at that. And I, and I tell you this with the understanding, it's okay. If you want to look down on me for my hobby, I'm not going to take offense. But... I am going to point out, I won't look down on you, whatever your hobby is. If your hobby is needlepoint, so be it. If it brings you satisfaction, hey, have at it. Quilting is a favorite hobby for some. My dear mother is one of those people who, for years, has just found an outlet in creating quilts. And if you've been to the state fair recently, uh, wherever you may live... Man, take a walk through some of the displays of quilts that are entered into the fair. There are some just incredible designs and just amazing creativity on display. So what's the whole point of sharing this with you? I guess it's just to, to point out that uh, sitting in front of the TV may feel good or even sitting in front of the, t the uh, computer or your smartphone or something like that. Vegging in front of a screen is the path of least resistance. It's very, very passive. I think I agree with Daniel Buck. Maybe a hobby is what more of us need to find that sense of purpose, that sense of satisfaction when we're not actively working. Now, I count myself as a very lucky person. In fact, I, I consider myself blessed beyond measure because the work I do, what I do for a living, is actually something I enjoy very much. Which means it, I haven't felt as though I have worked a day in the last probably close to 30 years. I know if that sounds like bragging, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to say my life is better than yours. I just, I really love what I do. So if you're looking for something to bring a little bit of purpose to your life, find a hobby. Find something that, uh, that makes you happy. In fact, 
maybe there's a place where those lines cross. Do I dare suggest that maybe some hobbies can be used as a means of creating value and maybe even a little cottage industry, a little micro factory right there in your home? I'm not talking about, boy, now you're going to become a slave to your hobby and you have to constantly be making birdhouses or whatever it is. But if you're making something that's uh, incredible, that brings you happiness and you turn around and you uh, sell that to other people who see the value in it. I don't know. That to me seems like a pretty good use of your time. And maybe it puts a few bucks in your pocket as well. How's that not a win-win situation? Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is the number. All right, I'm going to shift gears, go a little bit different direction. Are you familiar with the name Carson King? I only heard about this guy for the first time last week, and it was because Carson King was found to have tweeted two tweets when he was 16 years old that were, uh, how can we say this, racially insensitive. I think, strictly speaking, what he was doing was he was repeating a couple of jokes that he had heard from some comedian. Keep in mind, this was uh, eight years ago. But uh, he he has paid a pretty high price for this. Now, Carson King burst onto the scene here earlier this month. He's a huge fan of, I think it's Iowa State football. And he had posted a picture of himself holding a sign that said, please Venmo money to me or send money. Uh, I need to need to replenish my beer supply of Bush Light. So he was kind of given a shout out to uh, Bush Light, which I'm sure Anheuser-Busch appreciated. And uh, he told people, you know, if you just want to Venmo me money, I need 25 bucks to replenish my bush light supply. Well, because he apparently is somewhat of a viral sensation or because the, the image of him with his sign went viral. He didn't get $25. He got hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations. Now, I can I can hear some people going, well, that turned out better than expected. But here's what he did with it. He took that money and donated it to the children's hospital there in Des Moines, Iowa. And what's more, he got the attention of both Venmo and Anheuser-Busch, who said, hey, you know what? We'll match that $350,000 donation. And soon over a million dollars had been raised for the children's hospital. Anheuser-Busch was loving it. They were like, awesome, man. You know, they get to look good. They're doing something very charitable and cool. They uh, offered to provide him with a year's supply of beer, actually asking, where do we send the truck? (laughs) But then an intrepid reporter for the uh, Des Moines Register did a little bit of digging and found two racially insensitive tweets in Carson King's past, back when he was 16 years old. And contacted him and asked him to comment about it. Well, what do you think about this? Well, Carson went to the media before the story could break and said, look, I there's a couple of tweets that have turned up here. I'm really sorry for him. Um, you know, it wasn't my intention to to offend anybody. I was 16 years old. This was not a good decision. 
But the story broke. Anheuser-Busch looked at him and just said, well, you know, you're... You're way too hot for us to be around. So they backed away. They will honor their their donation. But it raises so many interesting possibilities here. I mean, just this last week, I had a chance to uh, to speak with uh, uh, one of the provider, one of the uh, contributors to Young Voices. And and he was uh, he was talking about the cancel culture. And I think this is a good example of that. Now, granted, Carson King doesn't have a TV show from which he can be canceled. I don't know if he had a job that he could be thrown out of. But the bottom line is suddenly he's marked as, well, this man is an undesirable. Brand him with this scarlet letter. Let him carry it for the rest of his life. And there's another twist to this story, but I'll tell you that in a a moment. In the meantime, I want to ask you something. Have you ever uttered or written something that could be considered insensitive, inappropriate, or politically incorrect? Now, I realize I'm asking you a rhetorical question, but if you and I were standing face to face and I asked you, have you ever uttered or written something that could be considered insensitive, inappropriate, or politically incorrect? What would your answer be? And I'll cut right to the chase. If the answer you give me is anything other than, well, of course I have. We all have. Then you're probably not being honest. And most likely it's because you're simply trying to keep some distance from the cultural witch hunter so you don't end up like Carson King. But the reason I ask this question is to illustrate this this growing ideological intolerance that seeks to destroy individuals in the name of what its enforcers tell us is tolerance. It's that gotcha mindset that we saw when Carson King was in the crosshairs of the social enforcers just a few days ago. By the way, his campaign to raise beer money actually ended up generating more than $2 million for that local children's hospital. But he lost the support of Anheuser-Busch and Venmo when a Des Moines Register reporter dug up these two racially insensitive tweets made when he was 16 years old. King, to his credit, apologized for the slights, but the damage was done. He was convicted in the court of of social justice opinion. And he was considered too radioactive to even be near. Can you see where this kind of thinking might be leading us? Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Sam Collins. Excellent. Sam, how are you? Uh, not bad. In answer to your question, yeah, I say politically correct things all the time, and I'm proud of it. Wait, you mean politically incorrect? Yeah, politically incorrect is okay. what I meant. I was going to say, I, if you fact, were saying politically correct, correct things all the time, I'd, I'd have to, yeah. well, I'd have yeah. to reach out and support yeah, for you. Yeah, in fact, Trish, my wife Trish caught me, too, and was, she's in the kitchen. She heard, <laughs> yeah, so, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, uh, as I always say, what I've done, because uh, I've even, oh, I mean, when I do my radio stuff, I'm politically incorrect all the time. And I've said many, many times on the show, I said, I don't aim to offend, but sometimes the truth offends. So, okay, but song by I'm, I'm going to press you. Let me press you just a little bit here, Sam. Yeah. Have you ever said anything that wasn't just politically incorrect, but that was maybe downright offensive? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, in today's world, anything can be deemed downright offensive, and I'm sure I probably have. I mean, uh, 
I, I know, you know I know I have, and in the in the interest of unburdening myself through confession here, I used to one of the, one of the best Christmas gifts I ever got when I was a teenager, about sixteen, as a matter of fact, was a book called Totally Tasteless Jokes, and I don't remember which volume it was, but I'm telling you, those jokes were absolutely tasteless. Lots of them had the N word. Lots of them were just crude or just they were tasteless jokes. And you know what? My friends and I laughed at them, and we told them back and forth to each other. But there came a point where we outgrew them. And I, I don't, oh, say, yeah. I don't say that because yeah. I'm proud of it. I'm just saying I think every single one of us has said things at one time or another that either deliberately or accidentally were offensive or, or inappropriate. Well, I go back to with some of this stuff. Some of this politically correct stuff is just going overboard. I go back. There's a song that uh, was out by the Eagles several years back called Get Over It. Oh, yeah. And I always tell people, you know, hey, for those of you out there that can't handle the truth, here's your song. And I just leave it at that. Um, that song says more about where we are today, probably, and it wasn't even as bad back then, but it was getting there because we had all these TV shows that displayed victims on parade that had every single excuse as to why they did some weird thing that they did. And nobody wanted to take responsibility for their actions. You know, I, I lost my patience with all this politically correct stuff a long time ago. So nice. I'm, I'm not a Johnny come lately to this. I mean, you know, it's like I say, I don't aim to offend, but if the truth offends you, get over it. Well, and, and you're you're actually zeroing in on where where this really goes. It, it's not a matter of, you know, Carson King, um, I don't know what the content was. I know he was quoting a joke from a comedian from some special he had watched eight years ago. But that doesn't mean that, therefore, he is this intractable racist or he, you know, he is forever to be marked and can never change. Oh, absolutely not. And I would go so far as to say, Brian, that half of these people that are distancing himself from distancing themselves from him have probably done the same thing. Oh yeah, most so. definitely. But but they'll lie about it. It's it's like uh, was who's it? Paula Dean a few years ago. Remember, uh, somebody came out and said, "Well, I heard her say the N word," and and I think it was Matt Lauer had her on uh, the Today Show and was, was talking with her. And, and she asked him, can you honestly say that you've never said that word before? And Matt Lauer was like, well, of course I haven't. And she should have laughed in his face and called him out. Yeah. Baloney, Matt, of course you have. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, and then the thing, too, they, they take more and more of things in the language. In fact, the N-word, as everybody likes to call it, really doesn't mean what a lot of people say that it means, but they twist it all around and, you know, and, and make it into, you know, I mean, um, and that's part of the problem, too. I mean, they, they play word games with us, just like they do with the word gay. When we were growing up, gay meant you were happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and, que- now, and queer was something that was just a little bit off. Yeah. And, uh, but see, they play word games with us, and then now here we are, we're, you know, Gay means, you know, the uh, homosexual lifestyle, and that's not what originally meant at all. And I go back, I, I tell people, you know, just because people change things doesn't mean that it's so. Here, here. Uh, there you go. Anyway, that's all I got. Hey, Sam, great to hear from you. We'll take a break, and we'll be back after these messages.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We're talking about Carson King, the 24-year-old viral sensation. Posted a thing. I think it was on Instagram. or, or Was it Instagram? Was it Twitter? I, think, I don't know. Anyway, on social media, posted a picture of himself holding a hand-lettered sign talking about how he needed to replenish his beer supply, needed some more uh, bush light, please Venmo money to this address. And instead of 25 bucks to replenish his beer supply, he ended up with hundreds of thousands of dollars, which he generously turned around and then donated to the uh, children's hospital there in Des Moines. And the donations have just kept, kept pouring in. But an intrepid newspaper reporter with the Des Moines Register did a little bit of digging and found that, hey, this guy, when he was 16 years old, this Carson King tweeted a couple of uh, racially insensitive tweets. A little further digging, you find that he was actually quoting a comedian whose special he had watched previously and just had, anyway, he'd send a couple of the jokes that the comedian had sent in those sent had said in those tweets. And there goes Anheuser-Busch withdrawing their, you know, support or their association with him. They did honor their uh, their offer to match the donations, and they made a very sizable donation. Venmo backed away from him. Whoa, bro, you can't do that. And it's ironic because the reporter who ferreted out this information, this reporter who threw the first stone, it turns out, was residing in a three-bed, two-bath, double-wide glass house. Ah! Because the newspaper did a little bit of checking and found on, the, on that journalist's Twitter account, there were at least a dozen tweets that were way more offensive than anything that Carson King had said. I don't like to use this word, but this, this described... There were numerous homophobic tweets. There were numerous racist tweets. There were some misogynistic tweets. And now that reporter finds himself kicking a pebble down the road. As of last Thursday, the reporter was fired. He probably would want me to mention his name, but as Paul Harvey would say, page two. So while it's tempting to sit back and and savor the karma, I want to bring it back to the real issue at hand. And this is the real issue. Can anyone withstand the current social justice scrutiny that elevates long past ignorance or clumsiness or insensitivity to a scarlet letter offense for which there is no redemption. See, I have a hunch that the whole point of this kind of ideologically motivated punishment isn't to right wrongs or even to promote authentic justice. It's to serve it as an example. When you see Carson King, you know, being pilloried, That's to keep the rest of us in a state of perpetual fear and doubt that, hey, I might be next. And that's a valid concern because weaponized guilt in the hands of social justice power seekers is a very powerful tool to mold and shape human speech and behavior. And as we've seen, at least in the case of this now unemployed journalist who uh, those who uh, wield this power aren't the least bit shy about eating their own. Now, you do understand, I'm not trying to defend people who are out there spewing really divisive, gutter stuff. 
the the Fred Phelps of the world. I know he's he's no longer alive, but he was the guy who started the Westboro Baptist Church. The guy who would sit there and and uh, picket at U.S. soldiers' funerals. Who would sit there and picket? God hates fags. That guy. I don't think that uh, I don't think that Carson King should be lumped into the same category as Fred Phelps. Because every single one of us, every one of us, I don't care who you are, how good a person you are now. I promise you, at some point, we've all made mistakes as we navigated those rocky waters of reaching adulthood. And I can't think of anyone who would care to face a lengthy inquisition about our speech or our attitudes from when we were growing up. I mean, come on, realistically, are you the same person at 16 that today that you were at 16? Do you carry the same attitudes that you held then? That's not to excuse misbehavior, but simply pointing out we all have, have done it because we're human. We're fallible. The key is to learn from it. We know full well we've said, written, or we've laughed at things that some would find offensive. But most of us grew out of that juvenile mindset as we learned that manners and empathy are very effective tools for becoming a decent, productive human being. So again, we've all made mistakes. We've all had to make necessary changes in order to become who we are today. And I say that with the understanding that who you are today is very likely a better version of yourself than who you were yesterday or 10 years ago or more. Part of being a decent human being is learning to apply the golden rule of treating others the way we would want to be treated. And that means cutting people slack when they need it. In recognition of those times when we will need others to cut some slack to us because we're the one who messed up. I mean, some of the most noble acts of humanity occur when a person extends forgiveness to another, even if the offending party isn't necessarily contrite. One of the best examples of this that I can think of is uh, the one depicted in uh, Victor Hugo's epic tale of redemption, Les Miserables. Hopefully you're familiar with that story. But you think about how the protagonist, Jean Valjean, transforms from a sinner to a saint. The turning point for him was when the bishop of, I don't know how to say the, the name, Digny, Ding, Dean, offered mercy to the guy who just ripped off all of his, his silver. And that, uh, that mercy was what shocked Jean Valjean's heart into making some necessary changes. And, and did he make the changes? You better believe it. The rest of his life in that story was spent living those changes. But before that moment... Valjean carried with him the lifelong stigma of a man who could not be forgiven. Didn't matter where he went, didn't matter who he encountered, he could not be forgiven because there was his yellow piece of paper. This man was a convict. Now keep in mind, this was a story, even though it's fictional, but it was a story that was dealing with an actual criminal offense as opposed to just mere thoughtlessness or insensitivity. But today's cultural enforcers are absolutely as relentless and intolerant as Inspector Javert was in Les Miserables in hounding and punishing and doing their very best to destroy any perceived offenders. And like the perpetually unhappy Javert, 
these cultural enforcers end up doing more harm than good in their quest for social justice. It's not about righting a wrong. It's about gaining control over people. And a person who goes around looking to harm others is not a good person, even if they're doing so in the name of some perceived sense of retribution. Those who deliberately look past the good that this Carson King has done since becoming an adult, only so they can hyper-focus on two of his teenage tweets, they're not making the world a better place. What they're doing is creating a culture where no one can so much as misspeak without incurring potential lifelong consequences. That doesn't leave us much option of learning from our mistakes. I think back to the headline I saw from the Babylon Bee just a couple of weeks ago that sums up this mentality absolutely perfectly. Prodigal son kicked back out after old tweets surface. (laughs) Look, the people who are at risk here aren't just stars or public figures whose gigs are being canceled. This totalitarian approach is an attempt to put all of us under the dominion of these social justice enforcers. So that they will tell us what we can say, what we can think, what we can do. Once we recognize it as such, it's not a very noble thing. So what am I recommending here? First of all, I'm recommending that the golden rule really has validity. And if you have ever had somebody cut you slack when they didn't have to, but they did it anyway, just because it was the right thing to do. And maybe you took that and you realized I got to make a change here. That's the kind of thing we should be doing. This whole, you know, looking for any little reason, anything to destroy another person is incredibly divisive and destructive. And worst of all, it it brings no happiness even to the people who are doing it. Yeah, they might get some momentary satisfaction of watching somebody else go down in flames. But like Inspector Javert, there's going to come a point where they're going to feel so miserable and so worthless in their lives when they realize how they've wasted their effort. Well, let's just say they shouldn't be standing near the Seine River. Thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.